Well, amen. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians again, and I look forward to being able to go through uh, this portion of Scripture with you where we will uh, we'll be going through many uh, Old Testament texts. So we'll be going back and forth in our Bibles a bit, and I hope that you brought uh, both a New Testament and an Old Testament with you. If you did not, there should be a Bible around you in the pew there. Uh, this morning, uh, we looked and uh, we noticed that Israel was spiritually privileged by God. On uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, Paul gives us the word all five times to remind us of all of the privileges of the children uh, of Israel. Yet in verse 5, right, in verse 5, we see that there was a problem. The very first word, he says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, with many of them, God was not pleased. And uh, we noticed, uh, if you remember, that uh, God wipes out wiped out many of the first generation of Israel, actually all but two of them, Joshua and Caleb. And, uh, and then uh, one of the lessons we drew from that in verse 5 is that spiritually privileged people are not guaranteed success. The very fact that we have spiritual privilege does not mean that we're going to finish well. And so uh, we tried to bring that out, especially from verse 5. Uh, from this point on, in verses 6 through 10, Paul is going to appeal to the Old Testament no less than five times. Uh, we won't have the time this evening to go back to every text that he looks at, but I've chosen at least three or four of them. We're going to go back and try to understand in their original context to make sense of what he's doing uh, in our passage here. And one of the benefits or the values from coming this evening and watching Paul as he counsels the Corinthian assembly is we can learn how to better use our Bibles to counsel ourselves and to counsel other people around us with spiritual problems. The Corinthians asked Paul a question about eating meat offered to idols. And from my count in chapter 10, I think he goes to no less than nine or 10. He alludes to nine or 10 Old Testament texts to help answer their question. And so Paul is like a sage old man who knows the scriptures well. And God, of course, through the Holy Spirit, leads him to do this uh, perfectly to help the Corinthians uh, understand whether or not they should eat meat offered to idols. And so we claim to be text people, right? Are we text people? Okay, so tonight we're going to learn how Paul was a text person and how he used his Bible with the Corinthians, and Lord willing, we'll grow in how we do this as well. And so it takes us into verse 6. I want to uh, finish out this little section that I didn't get done this morning. Uh, in verse 6, in verses 5 and 6, Paul is giving two reasons why Paul wrote about Israel, why he wrote about Israel. And uh, in, in verse 6, he teaches us a second lesson that he wants the Corinthians to get from the story of Israel. And that is, uh, the way I'd summarize it is this way, setting your hearts on amoral things can be wrong. I think that's what he's getting to in verse 6. Look in your Bibles there. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, it's interesting. Uh, you just kind of read through verse 6, and you try to deal with this, this passage. Uh, most commentaries believe that Paul is alluding to an Old Testament text, even in this phrase. We must not desire evil things like they did. Okay? Now, the question then is, what Old Testament text is he talking about? And I invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Numbers 11. And uh, while we cannot read the whole story 
I'm assuming you know a little bit about this story because just about a year ago, um, I actually went through this text with you. Remember that? No, you probably don't. Uh, this is what I called, the sermon title is called The Quail of Death. Maybe that uh, reminds you a little bit about what's going on in Numbers 11. The question is, what evil things were the Israelite people strongly desiring or craving? And again, most people will say that Paul has this text in mind. Look at Numbers 11 and verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving or lusting. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Okay, so as we work through this text, you remember this story? Remember the people of Israel, uh, the, the, the riffraff or the mixed multitude out on the perimeter of the camp begin to complain about God's provision? They've been in the wilderness for a month to a year or so, and, and they're, they're getting sick of, uh, of what, what, what they have, and, and they want more, they want greater, they want the things they used to have in Egypt. That leads Moses to complain a little bit later in the text. In verses 10 through 15, he begins to complain about what God has given or called him to do. That leads God to give help to Moses, and he provides for the people. Look down in Numbers 11, verse 19. Uh, God says, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Okay, and so what we learn in the text is the children of Israel complain that they want meat. God says, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you so much it's going to become loathsome to you. It's going to come out your nostrils, which I think is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end of the text. Remember this story now? The quail story. Because what happens at the end of the text, Numbers 11, see, starting in verse uh, 31, we find out that there's a wind that comes from the Lord, and on the horizon are uh, millions Hundreds of millions of birds. And God sends these birds to the children of Israel to give them meat. But then just after they get the meat, uh, many of them die. At least the ones who had the strong lusting or craving. So that's, that's the story about Israel that I think Paul's alluding to. He says, we must not lust after evil things like they did. Okay, but again, let me just ask you, and you can answer this out loud. What were the evil things? Look at verses 4 through 6. What were the evil things that Israel was lusting after? Or at least the mixed multitude was lusting after. Go ahead and say it. Food. What kind of food? Meat, garlic, leeks, onions, melons. Okay. What is evil about that? I think that the answer is, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with garlic or onions or the meat. However, it became wrong for the Israelite people because they were lusting after it. Okay, they were, and they were not content with the manna that God had given to them. And so I think the reason why Paul will appeal to this story is he's teaching the Corinthians that they must learn that, it, and sorry about missing some of those. They, they must learn this. It, it, is impo- it is possible to be under the condemnation of God 
for insisting on something that is not even inherently sinful. Okay, in other words, the Israelite people could say, what's the big deal? It's just garlic. What's wrong with garlic? We just want it. It's just meat, it's just fish, it's amoral, right? It's not better, it's not worse. I mean, we're not disadvantaged if we partake of this. We just want it. And so uh, the, the problem here uh, is it is possible to be under the condemnation of God for insisting on something that is not even inherently sinful. Uh, let me read to you uh, a, the way Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, talks about this. He says, yet, he says, yet even that which is amoral, amoral, can often give way to the immoral. Indeed, those links usually account for why even morally neutral practices were first forbidden. In other words, the problem with the Israelite people is not the object of their lust. The problem is the strong desire itself. They might say it's just birds, but they just wanted them too much. The same thing might be true of the Corinthians. You could, you could hear perhaps some of the Corinthian stronger brothers reason and argue, Paul, it is just meat. It's a block of protein. What's wrong with meat, Paul? And I think he's confronting them in case th- their craving or their desire for it is too strong. It is possible sometimes for us as believers of Jesus Christ to so strongly crave after something that is not even inherently sinful that it can be wrong for us. So even something like watching TV, for instance, okay, which might not be a problem, can become a problem if we get addicted to it, right? It just takes up all of our time and keeps us away from other pursuits and things that we should be doing. Or video games, for instance, right? Ooh, I just touched some of, uh, so video games. There's nothing inherently wrong with some video games, right? But the problem is that can, it can become a problem. Why? Because we get addicted to it, and that's all we want to do. We spend every waking moment, right? We wake up playing video games. We go to bed playing video games. We stay up later doing it. And we could argue as well, you know, it's just a video game. It's a clean game. And the, the problem is we're just too strongly craving it. It's an immoral thing, but we're, we've got a strong craving problem. Or uh, let me apply it in another way. Uh, uh, let's, let's talk about the way people dress in town for a moment. Okay. Uh, why do some young people dress the way that they do today? Okay. Uh, I don't even know what's in style anymore. I find myself you know, falling farther and farther behind. My kids help me with this. But you know, I used to go down to the mall or something, you see someone with, you know, men with like these huge belt buckles. Why do they have these huge belt buckles? I mean, what are they trying to accomplish? You know, can they just find another belt buckle and just hold their belt up, you know? But no, they, they want to be seen. Or perhaps this is another illustration that we can talk about. Why, why do some young women wear the things that they do? Okay, why, why do some young women wear clothing, you know, wear, wear a shirt that's three sizes too small? Okay. Uh, well, the truth is about some of those young women, they, they really want guys to look. And the problem with guys is they really want to look. Okay, so imagine this problem now hits your home. 
your daughter, your young daughter comes to you and she wants to buy the shirt. And she could argue this way, Dad, it's just a shirt. It's polyester and cotton. What's wrong with polyester and cotton? And so then as a dad, you have to say, you know what? We're arguing about something that's amoral, okay? The issue is not polyester and cotton, unless you go back to like the Old Testament law about mixed garments or something. It's, I can't prove that mixing cotton and polyester is necessarily wrong, but we've got to get to the level with our daughter in the conversation where we talk about the desire behind it. The problem is not that it's cotton. The, the problem is there's not, a, not, not enough of the shirt. Right? Sometimes strongly craving something that is immoral can be sinful or wrong for us. If we so strongly crave it, we're discontent with God's provision. If the Corinthians clutch onto the meat, it will become wrong for them. And so in verse 11, I think that he is uh, making this general, uh, chapter 10 in, in Numbers 11 here, he's making this general point to us. But that leads us to four specific problems that he deals with uh, from the Old Testament. We'll go quickly through uh, some of these with you. We move on to verse 7. And here he gets very specific, and he starts appealing to different Old Testament texts. You can turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32, and I'll read 1 Corinthians 10, 7 for us. Paul says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, but then rose up to play. Okay, so when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, it is very clear that he is quoting the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so if you're reading that in verse 7, he says, don't be idolaters like them, and let me tell you the text I'm talking about. And he quotes Exodus 32 and verse 6. But one of the questions we should have if we're looking through, if we're looking through verse 7 is Paul says, don't be idolaters, and then he quotes a verse that doesn't say anything about idolatry in it. It does have food in it, so it's going to be helpful, right, in the Corinthian discussion and their consideration. But it doesn't have anything about idolatry in it, so God, through the Holy Spirit, leads Paul to do that, I think, to force us to go back to the Old Testament and try to understand the passage that Paul is dealing with. And so he's appealing to Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, which is a section about... um, the golden calf incident. And so in your Bibles, let's look at Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, that the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And when he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, or and he made a golden calf, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and here's the quote, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
This, this golden calf incident, of course, is one of the most famous or infamous texts that describe Israel's failure in the Old Testament. Uh, because Moses was delayed to come down out of the mountain, the children of Israel indulge in idolatrous worship and break the first and the second of the Ten Commandments. In this text, I want you to notice a few things about Aaron the priest and how he handles the situation. First of all, Aaron bows to the pressure from the people. If you're looking down your Bible at verse 1, you see that Aaron caves in. It says that the people gathered around Aaron to force him to this false form of worship and idolatry. I think this pressure may be similar to what some modern preachers face when their congregations poll lost people. Asking lost people, what would you like to see in our worship service? And then infuse it, uh, you know, put pressure on the preacher to put it in the assembly. Now, fortunately, I've never faced that pressure here. But Aaron feels this pressure, but then notice what he does in verse 2. Aaron suggests an approach for the people. He asks them to bring their gold to him. And then Aaron, the high priest of God, fashions the idol, verse 4. And in verse 5, he suggests that this worship be performed to Yahweh. Perhaps from Aaron, this is uh, an effort to redeem the dead or to Christianize the false paganism that the people were pursuing. Okay, you see what he's doing? Okay, so they're worshiping this golden calf. And he says, tomorrow, let's declare a feast to Yahweh. Let's worship God through this. This Old Testament text uh, uh, here, I, I believe, uh, we, we learned that you know, God is going to judge these people for their compromise with false worship. And he does so at the end of the text, in verse 35, with a great plague. The Old Testament problem for Israel is that they commingled false worship practices with the worship of God. And they were subject to his great displeasure. I think this Old Testament text is quoted and applied by Paul to the Corinthian situation because the Corinthian believers needed to learn to avoid idolatry and idolatrous practices, even as they contemplate eating meat in an idol temple. I think it should also warn us as believers against Christianizing false worship practices and incorporating them into our assemblies. I think one of the things Exodus 32 would teach us, and perhaps 1 Corinthians as well, one of the principles he's laying out for us here is that believers must avoid some worship practices and methods because of their close association with false worship. Okay, so what Israel is doing is they're taking some of the way some of the way uh, they had worshipped false gods, or the Egyptians had worshipped false gods in Egypt, and now they're bringing it over, and, and Aaron is saying, now we can perhaps perform this worship to Yahweh. Okay, and of course, for us, this is a more difficult thing. We, you know, we should never try to pull in like pagan practices or rituals into our worship services. I want to assure you that one of the things that uh, our pastors do, and, and Paul Q, we'll gather and we'll talk about the worship service every week. 
And uh, we, we, we talk about all the different components of it, and we try to think biblically and theologically through it. Uh, and so uh, it, one of the things we're looking to avoid, of course, is you know, some sort of pagan influence that would be filtering itself into the church. Of course, this becomes more difficult for us sometimes when, uh, when there are differences between the, the sort of Christians who are providing resources for us and so on, and we're trying to think through, you know, is this, is this biblical? Is this true? I want to reassure you that uh, we are concerned about this and we attempt to work our way through this. Well, let me, let me uh, go to the next text for you here, verse 8. You can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So he's going through these Old Testament uh, stories. He, he quoted one, and now he's going to allude to another story in verse 8. He says, uh, in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Well, here he does not quote the Old Testament, but it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you look in this verse, it's obvious he's got the Old Testament in his mind again. And he gives a very specific reference. He's talking about a time when 23,000 people die in one day. My opinion, uh, the, the text that he is referring to comes from Numbers chapters 22 through 25. So you can write down that reference, you can study that this week, and I'll give you the story and a little bit of the backstory to it. And then we'll talk about why Paul would use this text with the Corinthians. Numbers 25 verse 1 says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. In this text, what we see is that the daughters of Moab entice Israelite men to commit immorality and idolatry, including participating in sacrificial meals. Another text about idolatry, another text about food, and so Paul's going to use it with the Corinthians. Situation actually degenerates in Numbers chapter 25 to the point in verses 6 through 8 that there's an Israelite man and a woman performing a sexual act just outside of the tabernacle. Remember the story, Phineas gets the priest, kills both fornicators through with a javelin. This is a, a graphic story. But Israel's failure in this moment of sinful indulgence had a backstory, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about a little bit. I mean, how did Israel get to the place where they would commit these sort of sins with the daughters of Moab? And the backstory is this. There are two figures. Balak the king of Moab, who sends an invitation to Balaam, a prophet. And so the way the story goes in Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24, Balaam, the prophet, refuses the invitation of the king of Moab on two separate occasions. But then finally, uh, he accepts the king's invitation to go and to meet with him. And on this third invitation, Balak takes Balaam to three different high places and encourages him to curse Israel. You remember this story at all? Right? Curse Israel because uh, Balak greatly longed for the destruction of the Israelite people. Okay? But instead of cursing Israel, what does Balaam do? He blesses them. Okay? That ends up angering King Balak and they part ways. 
Okay, so to this part in the story, you're thinking, okay, Balaam has resolved, the prophet. He's not going to sell out Israel, and he, he does what God wants him to do. But in the New Testament, John, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2.14, says this to the church of Pergamum. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who, sold, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, um, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and to practice immorality. Okay, so the part of the story that I didn't cover was later on the book of Numbers, it becomes obvious that Balaam sells out. And he encourages King Balak in this way. He says, you want to get the children of Israel, this is what you need to do. You need to send your women into them. And so King Balak sends Moabite women, maybe prostitutes, something like that. He sends them to the children of Israel, and then the children of Israel fall and commit these sort of sins with the daughters of Moab. And so this is, I believe, the story that that Paul talks, that uses with, Israel, or with, with the Corinthians when he says, you know what, don't commit immorality as they did when in one day 23,000 people were judged by God. So the Corinthians must learn from the failures of the Israelites in the story because the Corinthian believers had strong moral temptations all around them. In, the, uh, in the, the main city of Corinth, down in the Agora, or the marketplace, there were at least 26 different idol temples. 26 different idol temples in Corinth. And many of them, many of them were known, these temples and these places of worship, for, for the pr- promiscuity and the connection to temple prostitutes or immorality. And so if the Corinthian believers, a stronger believer, was suggesting, you know, I can go down to Idol Temple, I can eat meat there, it's no big deal, I know meat's nothing, there's only one God, you know, and all this stuff, Paul's saying, hey, don't be too overconfident. You need to be cautious, because what is closely connected with idolatry in Corinth often was falling into immorality. And so the Corinthians must learn that they should never exercise their freedom if it puts them in a place of strong moral temptation. Okay, and so Paul is, I think, encouraging them to be cautious. I'd say Christians today as well should be careful to avoid any freedom that puts us in a place of strong moral temptation. If we cannot just learn from like, if we cannot just learn from the Israelites, just learn from the Corinthians too. And, uh, and so if we are aware of any place where we might be tempted to be immoral, we should be cautious as well. And so Paul's going through these stories. He goes in verse 9. He talks about the fact, uh, he, he, I think, appeals to another story, and, and we'll, we'll speed this, this up just a little bit in verse 9. Uh, he says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Okay, so what Old Testament story is he talking about here? The snake story. Okay. This is found for us in Numbers 21. We won't go there. I'll read just two verses to you. Numbers 21, verses 5 and 6. 
says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food. Another text about food. And there's no water. And we loathe this worth, worthless food. So they're complaining about God's provision of food again in Numbers 21. Uh, then the next verse says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. What happens in this text is Israel begins to complain because they're beginning to run out of food, and they're backtracking through the wilderness because of some events that have occurred uh, in their life. And, and uh, so they complain against God. They question his plan and his power, and they want more variety in their foods. But one of the, the challenging questions in verse 9 is, what does Paul mean when he says that they tempted Christ? I mean, what does that mean? Again, was Jesus in the Old Testament text or not? And, and so one of the things I want to help you with is, what does this possibly mean? One of the first things I'd have to tell you is the word Christ in, in the New Testament is a variant. There are different readings. It could also read Lord. Let's not tempt the Lord like they did in the Old Testament. But I think the stronger reading is Christ. So I think the ESV has it right here. I think they have it right. I think that he's saying don't tempt Christ as the Israelites tempted Christ. So we're still left with, with the question, what does tempting Christ mean? Well, I think that uh, perhaps Paul has already talked about the fact that in some way or another, Jesus was a part of this Old Testament story. Remember this morning? We're talking about the movable rock. It followed them around, and then, then what did Paul say? Who was the rock? The rock was Christ. Okay, so Paul has already portrayed Christ as being active somehow in the wilderness wanderings and providing for them. Okay, again, I argued this morning that was symbolic, but that Jesus was providing for them. Uh, in, in, you know, the, the Christ, the Son, was providing for them in the Old Testament. Well, I think the main point he's, he's really trying to get to uh, with this text is the Israelite people question whether Christ or whether God was with them anymore. In other words, they're pushing God and trying his patience. So Paul uses this text with the Corinthians because they, uh, the believers there must learn not to provoke God as well. Okay. If some of the Corinthians think that they can go down into an idol temple and sit and eat and participate in the paganism, and then the next day or later that day go over to the table of the Lord and eat there too, I think Paul is saying you just might be pushing Christ's patience. Later on in the text, he talks about eating at the table of demons and the table of the Lord as a means of provoking God and his judgment. You can't sit at the temple of demons and think it's okay and then come over and sit at the Lord's table. Are you trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy? I think that's what he's doing there in verse 9. We've well, got one more text I want to talk about, and that's verse 10. So it's kind of fun, right? He's going through all these Old Testament texts. He's using his Bible in different ways. You can turn in your Bibles to Numbers 16, and we'll end in this text. Let me read 1 Corinthians 10.10 with you. 1 Corinthians 10.10, Paul says, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Okay, so Paul keeps appealing to the Old Testament text. He keeps appealing to the example of Israel. He says, don't be like Israel here. Don't be idolaters. Don't be immoral like they were. Don't be presumptuous or test Christ's patience. And now he says, don't grumble and complain as they did when they were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay. The big question with this verse is what or who is the destroyer? I want to suggest that perhaps the destroyer here might be some sort of like destroying angel. Destroying angel, I think it's capitalized uh, by the ESV because they think it's referring to a person or something. But I think it could be a destroying angel and there's some dispute about what Old Testament text is he talking about where the children of Israel begin to grumble and then a destroyer takes them out? Okay, I think the best possibility is Numbers 16, and so I want to walk through this text with you just before we close. Look at Numbers chapter 16. This is the Old Testament story of the rebellion of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. Look, at, look with me at verses 1 through 3 to set the context of what is going on. Verse 1, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For in all the congregation, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Okay, so you have some of these, the, these people from a Levitical background begin to question Moses and Aaron, and they say, you know what, you've gone too far because you're, you're claiming to be above the people. Well, Moses responds to them in verses 4 through 7. So look at Moses' response. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and to all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Okay, so it's, it's this difficult story, but basically Moses challenges them. and says, no, I have not gone too far. You've gone too far. Who are you to question me as a leader of the people of Israel? Well, later on, we, can, we don't have time to look through the whole story. I mean, this is an amazing story, but we can see God's response in verses 20 through 24. Look what God wants to do to Korah, Datham, Abiram, and on. Verse 20, I'm sorry. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. Something's going to happen here. But God's immediate response is, You know what? I'm just going to wipe out the entire congregation of complainers. They're questioning you and your leadership of the people. Let, 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 me, let me get them. Moses appeals. He says, Are you going to wipe them all out? And so there's this isolation of these three people, Korah, Datham, Abiram, and their dwelling places. Look down at verse 28. And Moses said, 
Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me. So he's now addressing the people. To do all these works and all that has been uh, has not been of my own accord. If these men, these three men, die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, they go down alive into Sheol or the grave, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. It's an amazing story. And as soon as he had finished speaking, verse 31, all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, with all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who, uh, who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out for the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Okay, so I think this is the text that Paul's alluding to perhaps in the Old Testament, but he says uh, regarding this text, don't complain as they did when they were destroyed by the destroyer. So this point, though, there's not really much complaining, but look down at verse 41. This is when the congregation, I think, really blows it. Verse 41. But on the next day, listen to this story, it's amazing. On the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, quote, you have killed the Lord's people. It's just amazing, right? It's an amazing story. Moses says, you know, if this new thing happens and the ground opens up and it swallows people and then, you know, it, it comes back over them, you'll know who's on the Lord's side. And just as soon as he finishes, that happens. And then the next day, the children of Israel come back and say, you've killed the Lord's people. Killed the Levites. Of course, God responds to that statement and that grumbling and that complaining. A very, very powerful way in verses 42 through 50. We won't take the time to read it all, but he sends a plague on the people. In these verses, there's no mention of a destroyer. So there's no mention of a destroying angel, I don't think, in any of these Old Testament texts. But most commentators believe that this is the text that Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians 10, when he says, don't grumble like they did when they were destroyed by the destroyer. So again, we ask the question, why would Paul appeal to this text? I think he's appealing to this text because God takes complaining about his provision very seriously. We don't know, especially if the Corinthians were complaining, if this was prescriptive, or if he's confronting them because there were some who were complaining. It may be that some were complaining about what the Jerusalem council said about whether or not they could eat meat offered idols. And so if there were some of the Corinthians who were complaining about the fact that they could not eat idol meat in idol temple, uh, Paul reminds him this story, don't grumble like the children of Israel did. Don't complain about God's provision because he takes it very, very seriously. And so as we close here, I want us to just consider the way Paul used his Bible. He went to Old Testament text after Old Testament text after Old Testament text. Not only read 
maybe three. We dealt with like three of these texts in any detail this evening. But I mean, he is just quoting, alluding, and he's assuming the Corinthians will know this. And uh, one of the things I think that we can take away from this is we can, we can learn, like Paul, to use our, our scriptures with people. May I encourage you to know your Bible well. You ever been asked a spiritual question before by someone who wants your help and you're thinking, I just can't think of any text to help them? You ever been there before? Counseling, you're sitting across the desk from someone or across the, you're just like, I, I don't know. Well, may we be inspired by Paul's knowledge of the scripture. I mean, he goes, in the, the te- just the text we looked at tonight, he goes to five different Old Testament texts, and every one of them have food in them somewhere. To help the Corinthians who asked him questions about food. And so it may encourage you to be a text person. Uh, perhaps you're like me. My, my, my story is I was a, I'm a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to studying the scriptures. I remember uh, in, in Bible college, I went to Bible college, and uh, you know, I, I, I felt like there were times in, in my Christian walk throughout my teen years where I would you know, occasionally uh, study my Bible and so on, but really it was not until my senior year of Bible college that I began to consistently get in the Word in a regular fashion. And for me, I remember what God did. I was sitting in a class uh, on 1 Corinthians. And a good friend of mine by the name of Sam Horn, who was my instructor at the time, was working through 1 Corinthians. And I'll never forget him working through different texts of Scripture. And I'd sit in class, and I remember everyone else would leave at the end of class, and some of the connections he was making between the Old and New Testament and and showing these things, I mean, it just felt like there was a fire beginning to burn in my soul. My first first few years of Bible college, I think, much of what I was there for were all the wrong reasons. Sports, love basketball. Girls, of course, you know, Bible college. You know, I'm a guy, right? I'm a single guy. But we really, for me, it was not until my senior year of Bible college that God began to really whet my appetite for the Scriptures. Maybe you are a late bloomer as well. Maybe you haven't really applied yourself to study and know the Scriptures. May God empower you and strengthen you and give you that desire to know the word well so that you can then take it and use it in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, uh, I thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to be able to work through these different texts of Scripture today. I know there are many Old Testament stories. And Lord, a part of going back to the Old Testament so frequently, it almost wears us out and we get maybe confused with some of the stories. I mean, there's so many Old Testament allusions and quotations that Paul drew from and used that you led him to use. So Lord, instead of perhaps discouraging us with our lack of Bible knowledge, knowledge of some of these stories of Israel, an understanding of your word, Lord, may it actually inspire us. May we see Paul like a sage old counselor who knows the word well and is able to be used by the Spirit of God to help the Corinthians answer this question about meat. 
Lord, may we as well desire to know your word well. I pray that your spirit would teach us wonderful things from it so that we can help others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.